Join us as we go beyond the pixels in the Gamer's Edge podcast, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of video gaming. In each episode, we transcend the boundaries of mere pixels, immersing ourselves in the very essence of gaming and esports. Exclusive interviews with rising stars poised to redefine the industry, conversations with seasoned veterans, sharing their tales of triumph and tribulation, insights from coaches and commentators who breathe life into every battle, as well as industry leaders that create the heartbeat of esports. Whether you harbor dreams of becoming a professional gamer, are a devoted fan, eager to explore the hidden narratives, or simply find yourself captivated by the intricate workings of gaming and esports, The Gamer's Edge is your front row ticket. So fellow gamers, let's unite and explore. For in the dynamic landscapes of virtual competition, The Gamer's Edge podcast is your beacon, guiding you through the labyrinth of gaming excellence. So get ready for a thrilling adventure through the virtual arenas, where victory, camaraderie, and endless adventure await. What is going on, guys? Welcome into the Gamer's Edge podcast. I've got with me an incredibly talented mind here. He has built up some of the best brands, worked with some of the best brands, best organizations out there. And right now, he is the head of esports over at OG. If you're a Dota fan, I know you know what I'm talking about with these boys bringing in championships. Of course, y'all are now growing into Valorant and everything like that. But Mike, how are we doing today? Oh, it's not too bad. Doing pretty well. Uh, it's a little cold out here in Delaware, but uh, honestly, pretty good. Post holidays, so getting back into the swing of things. Nice. Now I know, of course, everybody's probably here thinking, "Man, OG Esports, whoo, big time in it." But my question to you, to, to break the ice here, of course, your handle is, of course, the Schwartz Brother. Does mm. this mean that you are a Gundam G Fight fan here? Is yes. that your favorite? <laughs> yeah. So G isn't my favorite, no. But um, I just love the. Uh, it's just a classic meme, to be honest. Um, just seeing him like hiding on a tree and just having a Domo and Yellow Schwartz Bruder every time is 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 pretty peak comedy to me. So uh, yeah, I do I do animate quite a bit. Um, <laughs> so I will say, I mean, I'm more of a. I would say recently, um, which for Mercury was a pretty solid. Uh, solid series in the Gundam franchise. Um, but I do actually enjoy the classics a bit more. I'm more of like a actual OG 0079 to like war in the pocket, um, you know, Stardust memories like that early era and stuff is like, you know, that's when I was getting into anime. So that was kind of my, my peak, but G Gundam was on tsunami, same with Gundam wing. So it was pretty easy for my childhood access. Yeah. I, I understand that. I would have to say double O is probably one of my favorites. It has yeah. that similar storyline to, uh, you know, the Waltz, uh, Gundam Waltz and all that, you know, Gundam Wing. Um, yeah. But it just, it seemed a little bit more raw, a little bit more gritty to me. And mm. out of the new stuff, I mean, man, Iron-Blooded Orphan can, it, it's top peak new Gundam for me was, was that. It was that just raw, you expected, you know, it's anime, you expect everyone to make it out and, they don't, they're, yeah. Yeah, they're throwing <laughs> curveballs at you. Yeah, yeah, no. I, I'm actually, I mean, it wasn't one of my favorites of the new ones, to be honest. I know it was pretty big because it, um, I think it showed on Netflix, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but, um, which was probably the, is the newest one that I liked. And the one before that, I think it was Double, it wasn't Double Zero, it was, it was Zero, and then it was Seed was before that. Seed was like the other one that I thought was pretty gritty and good. Um, yeah, but, Seed. Uh, Seed they all their own styles, one. yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, well, of course, to to 
put yeah, put us back in. <laughs> yeah, if you get me on anime, I, I it's over here somewhere. I've got a bunch of my anime stuff and some of my signed stuff over here. Mm-hmm. So we we can go on anime for yeah. a while. So I'll, I'll try and steer us the, back on the next podcast. Yeah. 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 Uh, but of course, can you share a little bit about your journey into the esports industry? You know, those early days, all, all the way to your current role there at the head of esports for OG. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a journey that I expected to come up with me working team side the way I have been. Um, so initially, I mean, I got into esports. My cousin introduced me to StarCraft Brood War when I was a kid. Um, so I fell in love with that and I started playing it a ton. Um, and I didn't really know there was like an esports scene. I just played it because it was a fun game, and then you know worked my way through like Diablo, World of Warcraft, um, RuneScape, like just you know MMOs, like broader multiplayer games and such. Um, and then I kind of fell back in love with StarCraft when I went to college, and StarCraft Two came out, Wings of Liberty. Um, and then I was like, oh, there's esports behind this, like in a meaningful way, and I started following the scene and everything else. Um, and I was grinding myself, and I was like, I'm gonna keep playing, get better at the game. Um, and that was kind of really when I got invested in it. And then in school, when I was studying, I wanted to go. Um, I was in for political science, but I wanted to go eventually to law school. So I've always been thinking, like, how can I bridge, you know, video games and esports and law all into one? And, you know, I think you start seeing now there's like a lot of entertainment, there's copyrights, there's trademarks, there's player contracts, there's immigration. So there's a lot of avenues for law to integrate with video games. Like, this is cool. That seems to be the focus I want to I want to go into. Um, you know, then I kind of Starcraft died off and then League of Legends really became popular when I was in, in college. LCS started up and everything. So got really invested into league i would say over my junior senior year summers um and then i had actually while i was studying for the lsats and everything just continued to drive and say like all right let's let's see how i can make my thesis my senior year about like streaming copyright law and um i ended up writing a a bigger piece on that um i got in touch with um with bryce blum who works at esg we co-authored a small paper about streaming and copyright law so it was just kind of all signs pointing to all right i'm gonna go work i'm gonna go to law school i'm gonna be a probably like a copyright trademark lawyer, like entertainment IP law. That's something I really liked. Um, as I was kind of taking my admissions to law school, um, there was a job posting on Reddit for a player development coach at CLG, which is my first job. And uh, I said, you know what, like what's, I'll just apply for it. What, what's the worst that can happen? So um, I applied, I heard back around the holidays, um, seemed pretty interested, interviewed with uh, CEO who's Devin Nash at the time uh, and Tony Gray, who's Zix from uh, just recently winning uh, Valorant World Championships. So um ultimately interviewed with both of them and then I flew out to California the next month and started my career as a player development coach. So it was a pretty pretty quick turnaround. So I put law school on the on the hold for now. Um and then decided like, okay, I'll keep doing that. So worked as a player development coach with the League of Legends team, then eventually with their CS team. Uh they got acquired by MSG as franchising happened in, in the LCS. Uh I went to go work at Immortals when the Overwatch League had started with the LA Valiant. Uh, worked there for a couple of years in the general manager capacity, um, and then eventually the director of esports for Immortals, so overseeing their lead team, Valorant, Wild Rifts, still having some input with the the Overwatch team as well. Um, did that for about four years, and then now I'm here at OG, which is my just finishing up my second year actually here as as head of esports. So working with the Dota, worked with the CS team, the Valorant project before uh, you know franchising was decided, um, and yeah, now looking at you know other opportunities for for OG. Nice. Now, you did mention school and everything like that. Would you say that copyright law and everything like that there at Shout Out Albright College, uh, were there any other specific experiences or lessons from your time there that really have been super valuable in your current role there with OG? 
Yeah, I think from college. I mean, I was also a member of uh, a fraternity when I joined my my freshman year. So uh, Alpha Sigma Phi was, was in my Epsilon Kappa uh, chapter. Shout out there. But um, we, you know, joining, I think, a uh, fraternity and having like a group working towards a common vision, you know, uh, being a leader on campus was also a pretty important thing for me. So holding multiple positions through that, working with uh, student life as a residential um, assistant and being able to see different types of people, how they live and work with them across different circumstances, even though we're a pretty small school, you know, being able to build those relationships, be a leader, be somebody who can work closely with people, I think is something that, you know, a lot of people in esports maybe don't have that experience, especially because they're all players coming up that don't have the socialization from, you know, face to face, like doing things. I also did track when I was in college as well. So, um, you know, being an athlete, being a resident assistant, like having all these different connections to being competitive, being a leader and all these different aspects. I think it did set me up for some success, um, you know, down the road. Nice. Now, would you I'm trying to think how to phrase this? Would you say that your primary responsibility is Dota or the the players? Or would you say that's more staff is your main responsibility and not just with, with dota 2 but the the csgo side as well mm-hmm. yeah i would say it's it's always about the players right at the end of the day you know we want to make sure that we're focused on giving them the best experience possible coming into og um and everything does start with the players at some point right because without them you don't have a team without the teams you don't play in these events and you know ultimately the business doesn't really work if you don't have people playing so they are always the you know the core focus like how can we give them the best experience wherever that's og clg immortals um but obviously you have to focus on the staff too, because they need opportunities to develop and be enabled to be successful because they're the ones who are going to be leading those players. Um, so, you know, the role is how do we focus on the business of, of OG being, you know, the best destination for players. And also like, how do we propel us forward, whether that's winning, whether that's creating content, whether that's, you know, um, entering into new ventures, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of avenues I have to look at, but if you want to start at the core, it's get the players, then, you know, the staff, then the broader business, how do we actually grow them from, from that level? Now you're mentioning players and growing into other things. We've seen orgs drop out of, say, Apex. Uh, of mm-hmm. course, now the Overwatch League in flux. Uh, not exactly sure what's going to be going on with that. But where do you see OG going into the future? Yeah, I think you know for us right now, we've had a pretty conservative outlook on an esports for the past couple of years i've been here we were invested in valorant pre-franchising um you know we wanted to get a spot into the into the vct uh, you know ultimately didn't come to fruition but that's you know that's kind of the way it works sometimes um so you know i think for us like we haven't expanded out into other titles in, in quite some time um but we always look for those opportunities right i think when a lot of companies came in with you know investor backing you know individuals family offices etc uh, providing funding to help scale esports operations up especially in north america um, you know, it was kind of throw everything at the wall, see what sticks. And if we get one that hits as a unicorn and make that ROI, it, it works out. Uh, Europe is a little bit more conservative with taking in investor funding like that. So the growth has been a little bit slower on this side. That's why LAC franchised a bit later in the process. But um, when we're looking at it, you know, I think it also gave us a sense of security where because we're not having this huge capital alley with an expectation of investor returns, we get to be pretty quick on decisions we want to make. And also we aren't beholden to anybody, but the ownership of the company itself, which is, you know, Johan and Sebastian who are the no tail and Seb from the legendary Dota rosters. So we don't have to worry too much about that. So I think now looking into the future as it's an esports winter, um, we do have 
the ability to actually still make those moves without having to worry too much about, um, you know, is this going to be like, are we going to be able to generate a turn? Who is the investors we're worried about? Like any of the, you know, shareholder debts and such. So, you know, we're positioned pretty well to actually make moves, but just we can't do them maybe at the same scale that other organizations can do it. So nice. I look forward to, you know, what y'all end up deciding to, to venture into now. Soon. <laughs> TM. Yeah. Now your time there at LA, uh, you know, going into the immortals analogy, you've experienced handling logistics, communication, team management. What are the key principles that you follow in helping set teams up for success? Hmm. Yeah. I think the biggest thing, especially with logistics is you just got to be proactive and you have to, not only have plans a b and c but probably run through def you know maybe to z as well <laughs> um you know there's situations that will come up that you don't expect all the time and it's tough to prepare for those so i think it's it's not just assuming you're gonna get a visa and everything's gonna go smoothly i think i've done probably well over 70 you know p visas which are the international athlete ones since i started at la valiant um I could probably do them in my sleep at this point. I know the process. I know, you know, the lawyers that we go to to help, you know, facilitate those processes. Um, I'm pretty sure they're confident I could do it if they couldn't do it at this point. So, um, you know, we've gone through it, but it's like there's always something that happens. Like when COVID hit, um, how do you get players in, right? Like that's yeah. an important aspect. The LCS had to happen. The lock-in tournament was something that was going on when COVID struck. Um, how do you get these international players into the country? Well, that required the LCS to work with, um, you know, the U.S. government in some capacity to actually get COVID exemptions for these visas. So how do we get appointments? Do I, I have to fly players, I think, from like, um, we had a couple of um, Australian players uh, in New Zealand. So how do we, do we have to fly a player from, you know, um, Sydney to Melbourne to get a visa appointment to then wait in there in a hotel to then get it and fly out to L.A., right? Um, not something you would expect to have to handle. It's like, oh, he should just be able to go into this office and get a visa. Um, so there's stuff like that that happens, you know, changing flights, you know, things get canceled. What's the best way to to move things around for players traveling to different events? So, I mean, there's there's so much that you have to think about and plan. And when you have that experience over the past, you know, 10 years, essentially, that I've had been able to do it, you just see different patterns that come up. And it's, oh, I've, I've had this happen with a player before. This is what I did in this situation. This is what worked. This is what didn't work. And then just building on that knowledge base to actually, you know, help get players through, um, you know. I think COVID changed a lot of stuff for everybody, but um, I mean, we were planning with the LA Valiant specifically, we had to go to China for five weeks. We would have had to go uh, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Hangzhou in the span of five weeks. We were going to base camp in Shanghai, coordinate logistics, coordinate translators, trains, flights, et cetera, how we need all the gear across different things, you know, custom requirements, et cetera. So there's a lot that goes into these planning situations and you just have to start early and make a few iterations and plan to be quick to pivot and, you know, be confident in your decision-making. Now, would you say that that Shanghai trip is the hardest thing you've ever had to plan? And what's the craziest story of a, a mix-up, we'll just say? Uh, a, you know, a what, what would that be? A, a stick in the wheel of the yeah. bicycle that's uh, kind of thrown you off. Yeah, I mean, I think the Shanghai trip is probably the most logistically intensive one because that was the, the really, it was the home stand year for Overwatch. So we had to plan not just that trip but it was also going to europe and um you know even domestically flying between like la san francisco toronto vancouver etc just dallas just all across the world so that was a full year of travel planning that we were actually working on um which amounted to nothing at the end of the day because we didn't know the team was left anywhere so that was probably the most intensive because it was also sorting out 
multiple visas for for different countries, um, looking at different players that we were potentially going to sign, how that would impact. You know, if we wanted to sign a Chinese player, for example, would have been very easy to play in China, but uh, going to Europe, you know, maybe we couldn't get multi-entry. So he would have to go back to China to get his new visa, then come back. So there were a ton of situations like that we had to plan for, budgeting against that trip. How are we going to get food? What's the travel schedule? Like, you know, how are we going to coordinate break time? So that was the most intensive. Um, I'm looking at like a snafu, a stick in the wheel, so to speak. Um, you know, it's tough. I don't think there were too many. I know, um, I think we were doing another visa. It was, it's always visas that are the complicated ones. I mean, OG has had issues with visas because, um, you know, the war with Russia and Ukraine, that's complicated some things as we have Ukrainian and Russian uh, players. So that was definitely complicated. There's some interesting things that happened there with like, it's up to the officer and the consulate to determine if you're eligible for a visa and they could just say like, nobody's getting a visa today. And like, you're kind of stuck with that. Um, We did have an issue where um, a visa officer looked up the wrong company that we listed. So there's like Los Angeles Valley was the actual doing business as, but there's a specific legal entity that was, you know, holding that. And they didn't look up that one correctly because there's two LA Valiants apparently. And they denied all of our visas because they thought that we were a defunct company. Yeah. And then we had to go back and be like, no, you're wrong. Like we're real. Here it is. Here's all the stuff. Um, but that was a pain because that actually threw off our boot camp plan. I think it was like two weeks before the season was supposed to start for us. And it was like, oh yeah, by the way, all your visas are denied. If you want to appeal them, it takes six months. So that was a bit of a pain, um, but we ended up getting it. It took a little bit longer than we thought, but ultimately it was like, that's just what can happen. Like, it's not even us. It's just like, oh, one guy made a bad Google search and now you don't have visas. So the joys of human error basically. But yeah, that was probably the most memorable one. It was stressful and for every reason you could think of. Um, But yeah, other than that, I don't think there's really been too many like, you know, players missing flights and stuff like that. That's like, it's so minor in the grand scheme of things. Like you missed a flight, you can rebook it. Like it's not a big deal. Um, But uh, yeah, I think that was probably the biggest one that I can remember. Nice. Now, on top of the logistics and balancing visas and everything for everybody, as a player development coach there at CounterLogic, uh, how did you facilitate effective communication and training regiments for your players? Now, And, of course, this kind of ties into a two-parter for you. Uh, what would be your advice for an up-and-coming player that they need to work on to help them down the line? Yeah, so when I joined, I think, you know, it was still the early days of like esports professionalizing. So it was pretty easy because all of their schedule did at the time was revolve around like when are we showing up to scrims and we're playing solo queue. So scrims start at twelve thirty, they'll show up, they'll play scrims, they'll be done by five, they'll eat dinner, they'll play solo queue until two AM and then rinse repeat. That was the schedule. So when I got there, it was what if for example, we decided to get up a little bit earlier than 1230 and maybe went to the gym and had a good breakfast and then talked about things, set goals for the day. You know, things that we would think are very common sense now um, just kind of weren't. Luckily, you know, we were at CLG. We were able to bring in um, physical therapist who was, you know, on site pretty much all week. We had an in-house chef um, and then we were able to start working towards like, OK, we can provide you three healthy meals a day that are you know coordinated with our PT slash, you know, helping with nutrition that I would work with as well. Um We'd be able to go to the gym, you know, three or four times a week, make sure the players are getting healthy and fit and working out, you know, assessing their actual schedule and saying, you know, we're going to scrim these times, we're going to optimize the blocks, we're going to set goals, we're going to focus on these different things. Um, And then really just holding one-on-one meetings and like talking to the players as humans and saying like, you know, what are your goals? How do we help you get to where you want to be? 
you know, what are you facing challenges with in, in scrims, like personally or with the team? And then building, doing team building activities, doing communication exercises with them and just talking to them because I think they didn't have somebody that was kind of their peer, but also somebody who had a different life experience, right? Everyone they would talk to is a professional player, essentially. They all have the same shared experiences, which is good. They can communicate in that way, but there's no variance in perspective there. So somebody coming in who went to college, who had a degree, who was looking to become a professional, you know, in doing law, um, who was an athlete in college, who did all these different things with people, that's a different outside perspective. And yes, I knew the games well enough, uh, but I wasn't as good as the players. So it's finding a way to bridge that communication with them, I think was the most important part. And, you know, I like to think that, you know, for those players, I had some impact with them that they saw that there was, um, you know, different things they could look at in their own lives that actually would help them in the gameplay if they diversified that um, that perspective. So that's, that's pretty much what I did um, with, with all the teams. Just got to know the players as human beings and not just as the, you know, people clicking buttons um, and then work with them towards their individual goals and align that towards like the team actually doing well. So. As that's probably the biggest thing. And I've talked about it here on the pod several times is uh, you see a fan base almost turn on players if they're having bad series and stuff. And I think everybody forgets that as much as we love watching and normally we're seeing a player's point of view and we're just seeing a character run around, there's still a human being behind that character, behind that gamer tag. And, uh, man, I, I just see it as a, a joy and a privilege that we get to watch this level of competition and everybody forgets, uh, you know, to, to respect that human being at times. Yeah, it's definitely, it's tough with the, you know, the level of maturity, right? Because you're anonymous, like, it's the same as a fan in the stands yelling something, like, as a professional athlete, like, you'll hear the boos, and you'll hear things getting said, and it's like, it's kind of sent into the void, because it's not just one person, like, if you brought a critic, if you could take a critic from the YouTube comments, or the stream comments, and put them next to the player, like, they'd have been, for the most part, you'd have a normal human interaction, but because the anonymity especially online where it's just like you're a gamer tag blocked off from screens and you could be anywhere in the world this kind of empathy doesn't exist as much and obviously you're watching you're invested like you know maybe you're betting on a team to win or something um you know you're going to get heated you're going to have an emotional attachment to it and that's totally fine that's a normal experience is like the players are having it too when they win they're elated the fans are happy like everyone's great and when you lose like they're dejected and the players have to do some you know searching and say like okay what did we lose was it my fault and they're all going through this and i think having criticism is fine right it's like oh you should have done x y and z instead the players are doing that they're going over it the fans are going to say it usually you can block that stuff out it's not something that's like material but when you get it from like hundreds of thousands of people yeah it, it can have an impact and you got to remember they're 20 year olds right um getting death threats from people is going to impact them psychologically in a way that you know is different than it would be someone who's been a professional for you know 15 years in their sport where they can they're like yeah i've known this i've dealt with it like here's what i do just tune it out so it, it is a challenge obviously you're not going to stop like this isn't going to stop everybody from being a yeah. you know a dick online right but there is a level of empathy i think people need to have for younger professional players like they're growing and yes they're going to face criticism and they shouldn't be hidden from it but also if it's not constructive and you're just yelling obscenities at people like that's not really healthy either. So it's just being respectable as a fan and as a player. The Gamer's Edge podcast is brought to you in part by Swift Grips. Get 20 off your next order by using code RIVAL at checkout.
Now, of course, speaking of, we not to put it in, in a light term, but death threats, a deadly move would be a a, a reap. You being a jujitsu fan probably know what I'm talking about. Uh, now, not many people do know that you're a jujitsu fan. So, do you train yourself, or are you just a outside observer? Is there any interest in taking that competitive nature there to the mat and compete? So, I started actually last year. So, I've been uh, I had the opportunity to, to train out when I was in Torrance. Um, there's actually um, a studio out there that was was pretty good that I was at, and um, I haven't actually been able to get it because when I was in New Jersey now this past year, it's been uh, been a little rough. There was no actual good places to train that were close by, so I had it kind of left it off for this past year. So I'm hoping to get back into it. There's a few places near me now that I can I can look into. So it's been a bit rough to actually train since I'm traveling so much. Um, that's probably been the hardest part. Is like, you know, when I was at home, I was maybe going like, you know, flying once a month maybe so it wasn't too bad but last year i think i was on the road for probably 12 or so weeks and it just messes with your like lifting cycle plus training cycle is just not it so hopefully i'll get back into it um but it, it was a good experience like it's something that was fun and i enjoyed i mean i'm not typically the person who you see doing it like i'm a bit of a bigger person so um most jiu-jitsu practitioners i feel like are you know a little bit leaner <laughs> in that sense so if you do, I know there's a big event coming up in Vegas in the next couple months. Uh, if you end up making that, uh, my buddy Josh will actually be there. And 6'4", like, I think he's 225, but he's just solid yeah. ex-cop, yeah. ex everything like that. Mm -hmm. but, and it's, I, I hate going against him in sparring because he just manhandles everybody. Yeah. Uh, but maybe y'all can get a roll in. Yeah, I mean, I'm always down. Like I'm, I'm way out of practice, so I'd have to get, I'd have to probably grind up a few more, a uh, few more months to to feel comfy again. But uh, yeah, if I get out there. Nice. Now, is there any events coming up for OG that you're looking forward to? Oh yeah, we got plenty. <laughs> so right now, I think on the Dota side, you know, January is a lot of qualifiers and a lot of the. Uh, I think we have Dream League, ESL One, um, Bepum Dacha for for Dubai. So January is a big qualifier month for us. So there's a lot of events probably happening starting next week for us, going through the end of the month. So definitely big there. And then on CS, we have uh, Blast starts off this month as well. So it's a pretty big circuit for us. And uh, the major qualifiers, uh, big thing for everybody. So that'll kick off in a couple of weeks. So open qualifiers, we got to make the run from opens to to the major through the RMR. So it's gonna be a tough road, but you know, that's, it's a pretty busy January. January is a big month for, for us in that sense. So nice on time to get the boys to lock in. Uh, they've been, they've been training. So, I mean, I know they're, they're getting ready and they're prepping uh, the CS teams ready at boot camp over in, uh, in Kingwin at Warsaw. So, uh, they've been, they've been starting things up yesterday and the Dota guys are practicing at home right now, but, uh, they you know, they're going to get their stuff in gear pretty soon. So, well, I know we said this would be probably, you know, 30 minutes or so. So I appreciate you coming on with me. Uh, as this winds down, I do have to ask, you've just mentioned, you know, the Dota guys that are at home training and everything like that. Everybody's doing their own thing. Mm -hmm. How has this culture been so different compared to the other cultures that you've helped build there at the other companies? I think the biggest thing, I mean, 
the most obvious point for us is that OG is pretty remote. So everyone basically plays from home and then we kind of collect to different boot camps for events. So for, for Jota, we use the house in, in Lisbon, which is Johan's house, which you kind of, the teams have always gone through for the past couple of years. Um, but it's really when the events are happening that they go to boot camp. So other than that, they're just playing from from their homes. Uh, whereas in Immortals and CLG and Valiants, etc., there's always been a centralized office where everyone is physically present. So CLG was the house, and then eventually we, um, they eventually moved into a facility. But you know, it's just so different when you could wake up and then there's everybody you need, right? When I first joined uh, CLG, I was living in the same room with Nick Smithy, <laughs> so. Um, it was like wake up and then wake Jake up and then go to the practice room, which was the living room, and then eat breakfast in the kitchen, right? Um, so it was just like five steps away to to do anything. Um, at Immortals and Valiant, it was a little different because we had apartments that were separate, but all the players and staff lived in the same apartments. Um, and then we just traveled to the office. So it was a little bit more of a separation there, but you're still pretty close proximity to everyone you needed to talk to on a daily basis. And then your entire staff, like media, you know, content, PR, um, administrative finance is all in one central location. So any questions is just like pop by, like I could go up at the stairs and there's my PR team, my partnership team. I can go downstairs, there's media. In OG, it's, uh, I have to go to Slack and then be like, hey, what are you doing? And then we're all in different time zones as well because I'm in the US and they're they're in Europe. So um, culturally, it's, it's tough to balance. There's a lot of communication that you take for granted, I think, where when I'm in the office, it's just easy to like, swing my chair over. Hey, what are you guys doing today? Like, what can I help you with? What do we need to touch base on? Um, I don't have that. It's like I have to send a message and they could be doing something else and they don't see my message and it just takes a little bit longer to to connect. And same with the players, right? You're not physically in the same room. There's a lot of body language you don't get in that sense. So, you know, when you're expressing frustration, if it's via text, like it doesn't convey the emotion necessarily. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, if you're on voice comms and you're just, if I was camera off right now, you don't see the expressions, you don't see what I'm doing. I could just be a soulless voice at the end of the day. And you're like, oh, Mike's pissed. It's like, no, Mike's actually pretty happy and having a good time, but you might not get that. So I think that's uh, kind of the biggest cultural difference. Um, and then, you know, European and American, like, I think it's just, they're just different. <laughs> you know, there's ways we like to work that I think Europeans have different, you know, different takes on. So, um, you know, there's a bunch of those that I think come up, but, you know, we make it work besides that. Uh, is there any cultural like walls that y'all are having to work around not not just communication style uh not not particularly i think you know for the most part i think there's understanding i think when you have people from different countries that there's certain ways that they like to do different things or they perceive things like some communicate more directly than others um you know but i don't think there's anything that's like a true barrier to like working together where it's like you know you can't have these two people in the same room which is not going to work out i think it's just understanding how they intend things to get across. Like I said, some are more direct than others. Um, so it's just working with that. Nice. I, we did mention earlier, you know, the investors coming in and everything like that. People have talked about, and we've talked about here on the podcast, the esports bubble bursting or deflating at least, you know, but it's still an ever evolving enigma that, that is esports, uh, something that, I don't think anybody 20 years ago would think, you know, even would have existed uh, to this degree. But what trends or developments do you foresee happening? And uh, how do you plan to keep OG at the forefront with these changes implemented? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, you know, now is like you see, you're seeing a lot of teams that like kind of pull back. I know in the LCS you had uh, 
Golden Guardians had folded their league operation. Same with EG kind of, you know, dissipating everything else as well. Um, there is going to be that consolidation, right? Where not everybody gets a slice of the pie, right? That's just how it's going to be. Um, I think, you know, a couple of years ago and pre-COVID and even into COVID when you had the, you know, 0% interest rates and like capital was kind of just flowing around. Um, it's easy for somebody who has an ambition with a few hundred thousand dollars to start up a team, really. You have a lot of these like small orgs that just try to like, take the lottery ticket approach, right? It's like, we'll sign a Rocket League team, we'll sign a Valorant team, and maybe we make franchising, maybe we do all these other things. Um, and you see that approach where there's just a lot of saturation in the space, but like they can't all exist, right? Like there's only so many spots at the table for for teams at a high level. Um, you know, most of them like, give your liquids, your C9s, your G2s, et cetera, like the big brands, they have a pretty robust business model. They have a pretty diverse portfolio they can endure a lot of these different things. And like, yeah, they're going to make adjustments to the businesses they need to, right? Like salaries are going to come lower for players. Like the media rights deals and valuations on sponsorships are going to adjust because, you know, maybe influencer marketing is a more attractive proposal for certain organizations. So, you know, we're going to make those adjustments. And I think the ones that are conservative and, you know, look at things in a, a balanced way and say like, okay, can we actually entertain this? Or are we just doing it as like a vanity project? Right. Um, there's worlds where maybe you have somebody who has disposable income that just says like, I'm fine losing a million dollars to build this team. As long as you're going into that intention, it's okay. Uh, but if you're having an investor come in and say, okay, well, I want to invest a million and I want to pull out a five X 10 X return in the next five years. Well, look at the ecosystem. Like where are you getting that? Where are the media rights deals that are going to facilitate that? Where are the digital items that are going to, you know, build a consumer business around your esports proposition. So you know, I think for us, it's it's maintaining that kind of viewpoint of getting into games that make sense, leveraging our brand and our marketing strategy to actually, you know, bring in partners and bring in, you know, kind of these digital goods um, that we can hopefully build a customer base and a consumer base and, you know, give them what they need, right? We want people to come to our events. We want people to follow our teams. We want to be able to leverage that to actually drive the business forward. Um, but obviously we can't just, you know, spend money just to, build this out uh you know broadly speaking like people were doing five or six years ago so yeah. and is that something that y'all kind of look at as well yeah I think you you pretty much just answered it there um but it kind of touches on where i was going to go with the question mm -hmm. is you see games like apex and stuff like that where they don't have skins uh for their competitive teams is that a major foothold for an organization to try and bring some type of income in to supplement their team is that digital content yeah i mean it's a it's a huge part i think of why counter-strike has been such an attractive proposition for investment over the past 20 years because there actually are items that people have you know there is a marketplace for these items people want to buy them um and the cuts the teams get are enough to actually sustain the business itself if you're getting them on a regular basis. And depending on what your shares are with the players and staff, et cetera, um, you know, you can build a business purely around getting stickers as a as a revenue source, right? And I think the difficulty you run into is like the games are not the same as sports, right? There is no owner of basketball or owner of football, um, but there is an owner of Apex Legends. There is an owner of Dota and they get to make unilateral decisions through their game. So we need the publishers to work with the teams if they want to continue operating their esports. Because if 
the publishers come back and say, hey, we're not doing any skins. There's no in-game revenue. We're not going to share any media rights for broadcasting. We're not going to give you the rights to do it in the first place. There's no licenses for tournaments. Esports doesn't exist in that sense. You know, then we're back to we'll play, you know, we can play Dota as our five friends, but we're not going to be able to build out a, you know, multi-million dollar tournament system. So there, there has to be some work with it. I know um, if you want a good follow, it's usually Arnold from Gen.G posts about it pretty frequently um, where it's the publishers do need to work with the teams in that sense to keep the esport growing and to make sure that it's it's vibrant. There has to be an offering that works with the teams and hopefully the teams can provide some value back where it's, if there's a new game that comes out, for example, having an esports arm can be a very powerful marketing tool if done correctly and giving incentive to the teams to actually get into the game. So I think it's important to work together in that sense. Um, so it's a shame when you see some publishers maybe not operating in that, that world where they're just making those decisions and kind of cutting out the, you know, the teams, but Again, that's where we're looking at consolidation. The teams um, teams that have a robust business outside of the games themselves will be able to survive. Teams that build these relationships with publishers will continue to stay in those games as long as it's sustainable. Um, but if people are getting cut out left and right, then the pie is going to get smaller and smaller. And you're going to see organizations fold if they don't have, uh, you know, I mean, you have probably see it a lot. Like organizations will get into a new game. A year later, they'll be out of it. <clears throat> And the game could be great, but if it doesn't make sense as a business, like you're not just going to keep bleeding money out. So yeah, uh, especially with games like Rainbow Six, I, I've seen it, you know, yeah. hit them pretty hard. Uh, again, we talked about earlier the the crash of the Overwatch League, uh, kind of go down. We're seeing it now with Call of Duty. Uh, a lot of mergers now going on. You know, certain people bowing out of Call of Duty and everything like that. Um, and again, it's, it's like this deflation of high investments, of course, during COVID when everybody was shut in. And now that the world's kind of back out, you know, back out into the world, yeah. uh, you know, not so many eyes on, on the product has seen a, uh, a, a shrinkage and, and in a sense, I guess you could say it's a good shrinkage. It's helped stabilize, uh, you know, some of the aspects of it, uh, but it's still kind of sad to see because we see, uh, oh man, I, I'm so sorry to this gentleman because I cannot remember his name right off the top of my head. Uh, he is the main guy from Luminosity. Uh, Luminosity was catching backlash for how they paid their Rainbow Six players. Oh, yeah. And it was Alex that said it, yeah. Yes, Alex, thank you. <laughs> Uh, and he he let everybody know, like, hey, like, yeah, we may not pay them, like, thousands of dollars, you know. Yeah. But you have to look at Rainbow Six itself, look at our placements, look at our income, you know, coming in from Rainbow Six. We just don't have the cash to mm. pay everyone. And, again, that goes to what I was saying earlier about, you know, human beings – bashing other human beings for video games like this is still a company like mm -hmm. you wouldn't expect walmart to slash prices on everything you're not gonna go you know buy you know a jeep for you know 20 bucks yeah, exactly it's, so yeah we don't want to be like it's not like a corporate apologist thing where it's like oh because jeff bezos makes like a billion dollars a minute he should pay everybody like a million dollars, right? Like there's a benefit to when we're looking at like, look, those players, you know, they had an opportunity to look at this contract and say, we want to play or we don't want to play. Um, 
and they you know ultimately they're deciding now i'm not going to speak to the legality of like i don't know if what they're paying them is is legal or not i'm assuming it would be they have lawyers that look over this stuff but <clears throat> if they presented an offer that they believe is fair and the players saw that and they accepted that offer and now maybe the players get i think alex had mentioned this in his post as well you know they basically get all the prize money they get most of the revenue if they do make any yeah. um and they can leave whenever they want so it's Maybe it's fair in that sense. I don't know the Rainbow Six ecosystem, so I don't know what the normal player contracts are, but I do know that seven or eight major organizations left the space. Yeah. Um, and it's been in a rough spot. So, you know, people have to make their own decisions. And <clears throat> if the players feel like that's the best one for them, then they're going to stick with that decision. Um, if they don't and they're free to leave, then then so be it. Like, obviously, I don't want to comment on a situation where I don't have all the information in front of me to yeah. say like, oh, this is good or bad. But I think people need to recognize like, yeah, people should get paid fairly and people can accept or decline what they think is fair or not. Um, that's how esports works. If I make an offer to a player for $10,000 a month and they want 20, well, they get they can take my offer, they can walk away from it. That's that's how this works. It's just a negotiation. There's no like bad feelings. It's just how business is. Um, I know some people kind of get into it and it's a little personal. And I think, uh, I think there was a case maybe with Sentinels who had said something about that where they had a disagreement about a player and they it basically aired it out publicly and it's like look it's we're all trying to be professional about it like i might make an offer that somebody doesn't like and they can tell me that that's unfair but they don't have to accept that offer you know <laughs> that's how it comes down so um it's tough it's tough to figure out like what's the actual value of an esports player right it's uh you know you can quantify their social media but like what's the value of a player that i don't know has never won a trophy before um you know we're kind of just looking at the market and trying to find a number that makes sense for everybody but it's it's more art than science in most of those cases. So yeah, yeah. Well, I know we've been kind of bouncing all over the wall, back and forth, but between subjects. But I'm gonna get a little personal. We we talked about anime earlier. What are you currently watching? I'm waiting for the fall season to kick off. To be honest, I mean, solo leveling is supposed to hit in a few days, so that's like the the big to do. Um, currently, currently watching. Uh, what am I watching right now? I have to finish Skip to Loafer. That's what I got to finish this week, which is like from last season. But um, I kind of watch everything on the calendar. So um, I say I'm looking forward to solo leveling. And then uh, Classroom of the Elite comes out as well today. So that's probably another one. Yeah. Season so, three. Season three. Yeah. Coming out. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been I pretty much read slash watch everything. I think I've built up a pretty solid manga collection as well now. So nice. Nice. I'm waiting for. Blue Lock season two to come out. Uh, of course, uh, like you said, solo leveling's highly anticipated. Uh, My Hero is supposed to be getting a movie this year as yeah. well. Uh, I know Mappa has kind of shelved. Uh, I'm gonna just look up oh, Mappa. Is, is it Hell's Paradise? Yes, thank you. Oh, okay, they, I was like, I didn't to be honest, I didn't realize that was Mappa. To be honest, I thought it was something else. So. Yeah, Map Mappa Studios has kind of put that on the back burner because, of course, yeah, yeah. they're also doing Demon Slayer, which has its new arc coming out. Well, I'm pretty bummed because Hell's Paradise is a favorite of mine now. Um, I loved the manga, so seeing it as the anime and seeing it kind of get shelled for a little bit kind of yeah. broke my heart it's, a little bit. It was it's good. Uh, yeah, that was definitely a, an interesting one um kind of had a try to think what's a good vibe check for it it's a little surreal i would say a little abstract i'm trying to think of something that was compared to but it was uh it was definitely good i wasn't 
it wasn't like over the moon. I know like I could appreciate the design and how everything was was brought to life, but it wasn't like one of my my favorites from uh from last season, so a weird one. I don't know if you watched it and it'll be my my last anime. Oh, I'm actually going to look it up as well. I'm going to clip it right here and just come out with my my question. Mm. Uh anime where a like a idol, a pop idol oh, has uh, two Oshi- kids. Oshinoko, yeah. Yes. That that was a big surprise. They dropped the movie first, the, or the first episode was like first an hour, long. hour and a half long, mm-hmm. and man, it hooked me. Uh, I I yeah. was, I watched it pretty late. I would say uh, one of the one of my friends had recommended it, so I watched it, you know, afterwards. So definitely good. Um, the manga goes kind of off the rails a bit, which is like, you know, it is what it is. It's I would say it is it is definitely one of the top ones. Obviously, the song the opening was like super popular in Japan. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's been pretty good. My my and I think I've crushed probably like I, I've done a solid amount of watching. I'm a little let's see what's the actual. I'll give you the count what my uh, my list looks like right now. I won't give you the actual link to it, but uh, it's I'm putting in some work recently on that. I think I'm at let's see. I wish you would tell me like the full. Statistic. All right. So I've watched as of right now 360 series. Nice. So I've, uh, yeah, I've got a, I've got a good one. I would say out of that, you know, if you're looking at top tier, it's uh full metal brotherhood is, is up there. That's, that's classic. Uh, then I've got Hori Mia as number two. Um, and then Evangelion is also a big one for me. So, oh, yeah. Uh, super classic. I, I think that one is up there with everybody. Um, my very first anime was a anime called MD Geist. I randomly rented it when I was younger. My parents had no idea what, what it was as well. And I watched it in my room and ever since then I was hooked and that was probably fourth or fifth grade. Um, but watching people's heads get blown off cause it's a post-apocalyptic kind of thing and the very beginning scene is he jumps off of a cliff and shoots these guys in a plane and their heads blow (laughs) off because of course you know how they did it back in the 80s and stuff it was super wild and over the top explosion i was like i love this this is my new new thing uh well i do want to thank you my final question to you before i i let you uh, off the hook here is what are your personal goals and aspirations uh, not just for this year uh, going into this new year but just in your career in general oh man i mean i think lifting a trophy would be nice i mean the last time i think i uh i picked one up was 20 when i started actually with clg it was the summer or spring lcs championship in 2016 so uh, we got pretty close we went second in msi that year so it was a pretty good year but would like to pick up, uh, you know, some more hardware. So hopefully this year will be a uh, beer. Obviously at OG, we had a pretty successful run winning the Stockholm major winning ESL Malaysia, but um, you know, would like to add a few more in the CS side to the collection would be nice. I think OG picking up a trophy there would be, would be pretty sick. Um, so hopefully we'll see right now. It's really just, uh, you know, we got the new teams together pretty much. So just getting them onboarded and making sure that this is a good year for us is, you know, 
focus on the small things first and let the big things come later. Cool. Well, I do want to say thank you so much for coming on. And of course, we'll have you back on when we do a full anime roundtable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you get that one, just let me prep. I got to get some notes ready for it. So, well, again, thank you so much for coming on, taking the time to talk with me. Hopefully, you guys have enjoyed this episode. And Mike, drop a knowledge on us. Make sure you have your notebook handy as he was giving out those tips on what to focus on and everything like that. Until next time, guys. Peace. Cool. Cool. Awesome.